My name is Wizzy Brown. And I'm Bryant McDowell. And I'm Molly Keck. And we're with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Department of Entomology, and this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape. to Bugs by the Yard. Uh, today we are going to discuss a little bit about the history of pesticides uh, and maybe before we get into the history of pesticides we'll give the I guess official definition of what is a pesticide or at least what the EPA calls a, an, a pesticide. So um, pesticides are any substances you know that are going to be used to kill or mitigate these pest populations. Uh, pests can be insects, rodents, weeds, uh, bacteria. Am I missing something? Fungi. Yeah, but it's also it's not just killing. It's also, and this is important, repelling and preventing. Exactly. That was gonna, so repellents are pesticides. That's going to lead me into that. So yeah, anything that will attract or repel, anything used, I guess, to mitigate or control a pest problem is going to be considered a pesticide. And so those like chemical pheromones that are in lures, uh, that classifies it. And then you mentioned repellents. So things like DEET. Okay. So pesticides can be natural. They can be man-made or synthetic. Lots of plants produce chemical compounds that uh, mitigate their, you know, pests that are feeding on them so we can use those chemical compounds to our advantage all right so do y'all know officially when like pesticides i guess like when it was coined or when they were used to control pest populations the term pesticide or whatever i i read in my research that in mesopotamia (laughs) yes oh so I, i guess i should clarify so Um, aside from like direct plant compounds, because like botanicals have been used for so long. Um, but there's an instance of a book that was published in 1730 describing, uh, it's in quotes. It's a a secret formula, uh, used to control bed bugs. Oh, so bed bugs in the 1730s, bed bugs have been around quite a while. So I have. In, in my research, and this is agriculture-based, uh, first recorded use of insecticides is about 4,500 years ago by the Sumerians, and they were using sulfur compounds to control insects and mites. And then 3,200 years ago, the Chinese were using mercury and arsenic compounds for controlling body lice. It's of nasty compounds, right? Yeah, not something that you'd want to be putting on yourself, right? Um, so I guess whenever we think of, or whenever you teach history of pesticides, usually we're going to start like in the 1900s. Um, I think a lot of people's mind goes directly to DDT. Um, so mm-hmm. in the 1900s, right, we had a lot of um, agricultural and structural um, pests that were dealt with via these synthetic chemicals. So um, well, I guess before I get into that, you mentioned, did you, you said arsenic, right? Copper acetate, maybe? Uh-huh. 
Yeah, so the arsenics, I think, weren't those used in like the 20s and 30s? Yeah, that's what I was. And then there's, yeah, sodium, uh, fluoride, nicotine compounds, pyrethrum, all of those things, sulfur. And then I think if if I remember correctly, the they discovered that the arsenic stuff was uh, building up in the soil because it doesn't really degrade and then people started getting sick from it because they used they used to use it on orchards a lot right to spray fruits i say a good point to make whenever we're going to talk about like the, the rest of this timeline so um how long is said chemical you know staying around in the environment that's something that we want to be conscious of so um, aside from all of those that we mentioned early on that were used, there's also fumigants, uh, sulfur dioxide, cyanide, naphthalene, a.k.a. mothballs. That's correct, right? Naphthalene is mothballs. Yes. And I just, that that's known as a carcinogenic these days, right? I believe so. Every time I yeah. buy, yeah, I feel like everything I buy. I made that in organic chemistry in college, like in the laboratory. That is a substance that we wow. make. <laughs> that's funny. You made cancer. She's running a little naphthalene lab. (laughs) Um, So also maybe important to mention a lot of those early pesticides, um, super toxic. They also would kind of be moderately effective. So not always killing off, you know, all of the pests they were using them on. Uh, We'll talk about kind of the use of synergists now with our botanicals that we use today. Um, and how we kind of improved the the botanical aspect. So um, modern era of pesticides, we're going to, I guess, start in the 19, end of the 1930s, 1940s, when DDT um, was used very widespread. That was shot down by, well, I guess the start of it would have been, so in 1962, those of you who, I, I know that we always kind of reference Rachel Carson's Science Spring, it's a really good book. Um, plenty of case studies um, and examples of how DDT negatively affected populations of birds, mammals, fish. Um, point being, this is something that kind of stuck around um, in the environment and affected a lot of non-target things. As that kind of began popularity, people were kind of uh, experiencing all of these you know, declines in populations. We that, that then kind of led us to our pesticide laws that we have today and then the establishment of the EPA. Uh, yeah. And that was in 1967. Did you read why they were using widespread DDT? Because from what I read in my research, it was essentially that is how we got rid of or mostly got rid of malaria in the United States, because there was malaria cases, mostly in the southern states, of course, and they had where the CDC is now, their precursor was like the national mosquito something or other. And so they did this big thing where they were treating areas with DDT, they were draining water, and it essentially eradicated, for the most part, malaria from the u.s and while we still do have malaria in the u.s there's usually about 2,000 cases annually and most of those are connected to international travel um while 
I say that there has been just this year in 2023 in July, there are actually a few cases of locally acquired malaria in Texas and Florida, which is bananas if you think about it. It really is. And then to the same point, so DDT is still, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that I learned this, <laughs> still used today in populations or in areas where malaria is prevalent, right? Like African. Yeah, it's used in other countries. And it was it's used in those countries now the way that we used it to eradicate malaria. They were they were doing the spraying, but they also would paint like the inside walls of homes. So if you think about back then, they didn't have central AC and whatnot. And so the mosquitoes would come in through the screens or the doors or windows that were open. And if they landed on the walls, then that would have that pesticide on the wall and it would kill those mosquitoes. And so that still to this day is used in other parts of the world to reduce those mosquito populations. Yeah, it was kind of like the the wonder chemical, I guess, uh, when I when I read about it, right? So people, when you have a pest problem, you want to know what will resolve it. And so it's easy to think there's a one and done for everything, or people want a one and done for everything. And I think DDT was really, um, I guess, culturally that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's always like the, the picture that we start our pesticide talks with of like the big spray trucks and all the kids playing ball behind them and um is that kind of y'all's same interpretation yes yeah and then and my understanding of ddt is that it just remains in fat bodies forever and ever so it's it affected non-targets but it like persists for so long and so that was another reason why um you got resistance and why we didn't we don't you know environmentally it's not very good to, to have we overused it because they thought it was the silver bullet, but the, like, you know, for example, for example, if you spray DDT in a field and that, and the cow came and ate that hay, now it has it. And then that cow has a, has a calf um, and the calf drinks from mom's milk. And now the calf has it. And then you eat that hamburger and now you have, you know, and so it's, it's decreasing with each, you know, event, but DDT is still very much persistent in the environment because it's half-life is so long. Yeah. So, um, and then fun dates. So by 1972, uh, that's whenever DDT was banned in the United States. Of course it was a great one and done, but then you talk about resistance. So we were having in a lot of our crops, uh, essentially killing off a lot of the beneficials. And then we have these emerging new pests to deal with. Um, it was not working. And so this is kind of where we get the foundation of, of integrated pest management. So, um, not so much the reliance on just chemicals uh, whenever you are trying to deal with pest populations, but also the use of different physical and cultural controls, um, as well as biological controls when, when available. Let's see. So we talked about insecticide resistance a little bit in our last episode on thrips. I found that... Let's see. And in this book, it states that the housefly resistance to DDT was first published in 1947. So that's relatively, I mean, that's within 10 years of DDT even being used um, that our eyes were on, oh, insecticide resistance is a thing, right? Um, Other examples that we saw it in were cockroaches, uh, German cockroaches in particular. And you'll notice 
when insects have resistance, they kind of have these key uh, characteristics to them. So uh, a very quick uh, reproductive time, uh, a generation time. Obviously, you've got to be dealing with a kind of selective population. Resistance doesn't occur over like the, you know, all German cockroaches in the United States. Um, it might just be one population of German cockroaches that's investing an apartment building. Different mechanisms for insecticide resistance. I wanted to talk a little bit about that. So when we talk about the natural resistance that might occur in some individuals, so they may have higher levels of enzymes that are able to uh, degrade the insecticides or their nerve junctions are different or they have a thicker cuticle and therefore the insecticide is not absorbed as well. So those are the types of, uh, I guess, contributing factors to insecticide resistance in some of those populations. Do we want to talk a little bit about modes of action? I think maybe before we get into that, it might be a good idea to talk about why. Why do we use pesticides? Because I think, especially in the area that I am in, a lot of people are just like, you know, no pesticides. I'm not going to use anything. And I gave a talk recently. And anytime I mentioned the word pesticide, there was someone in the audience that was just like adamantly shaking their head no. And it's just like, while pesticides can be problematic, you also need to understand that if they are used or if they weren't used, if we didn't have pesticides, how much crop loss would be occurring from stuff that we're trying to grow. So how much of our food would be destroyed if we weren't using those things? To me, it's the great story of like trial and error on this too. Um, so the, that like deterrence from pesticides is, I feel those people maybe, maybe have been told or it's been reiterated, like pesticides kill, pesticides bad. No, pesticides do kill. I mean, that's, that's the point of them, but that's why you don't just spray anything willy nilly or try to come up with some random concoction from stuff that's in your house or garage. It's like there is regulation within that industry of pesticides. And that's why they have that ridiculously long label that you should really read and follow the instructions given there. Because, you know, we are learning and growing and changing as we, you know, do more testing on things and find things out. And so this is how we progress, but I'm not, I'm never going to be that person that says never use pesticides because it's important that we have those in our tool belt to help manage pests. Because if not, we would be hosed. There's no way that we're going to be able to feed all the people in the world if we don't have some way to manage the pests that also want to eat our food. Do you think people also maybe assume, um, so as far as concentrations of pesticide goes, um, maybe in the past how it was like you're putting this insane amount of pesticide, insecticide, whatever out, um, you, you don't really need that much. Right? Yeah. And con- like a 75% right. versus, you know, 0. 0.025 or something that we have these days. Yeah. Right. Well, and we also use pesticides in a more targeted manner now 
at least people who are licensed by a state agency if you're talking about like somebody who comes to your house or like farmers they all have to be licensed and they have to keep track and keep records of their pesticide use how much the concentrations where they're treating and if you think about how much like if you think about home pesticides and your pest control services it has gone from somebody coming in with a little spray can and spraying around the baseboards of every room in your house, you know, on a monthly, quarterly, whatever basis to them coming in and doing an inspection and then targeting those specific areas where those pests are. And that that's a great thing because while we still have pesticides that are being utilized, they are more targeting or more targeted to where they're being used. So we're not putting as much into the environment and we're going to be able to conserve beneficial organisms and reduce our exposure. That's a good point though. As, as time has gone on, right. You mentioned like we're learning, um, there's a difference between these like broad spectrum insecticides and there's a, there's a, a time, right. When it may be necessary for something that needs to have a little bit more residual and stick around for a little longer. And then there's other instances where if you learn a little bit about the biology of the pest, so something like a cockroach where it likes to uh, stay, what it likes to eat. Does it like something that's a uh, fatty food? Is it like something that's high in protein? Um, these are all things that we can take into consideration whenever we're formulating specific baits for ants or cockroaches. Um, and the application is way less, I don't want to say broad spectrum again, but um, you know, you're not going in and spraying all baseboards. I, I feel like that's how it was whenever I grew up. It was like every three months we would get like a can of something and I would apply something to <laughs> To the baseboards um, and then outside the house as like a perimeter treatment, uh, even whenever insects were not even, you know, seen. They did it in professional pest control, too, because that's why they called them baseboard jockeys. Ah. I was going to say, when you were mentioning that person in the audience that was shaking their head adamantly when you were saying the word pesticide, that's why I think it was so important to give the definition of what a pesticide is, because we think it's such a ugly word. And I will do this, especially when I do like a master gardener class, because a lot of people in the audience, you know, want to be organic or green or natural or whatever term it is that you like to use for that, uh, that we all, we all know kind of what it means, but, um, even organic products are pesticides and technically your two fingers could be a pesticide if you're using that to kill a pest. So it's just a definition. It doesn't imply yeah well disinfectants i mean if you're talking about that it's a bacteria side it is a pesticide labeled to kill bacteria on surfaces and so if you're spraying the doorknob for flu or covid virus you're using a pesticide and people don't think about that being a pesticide they just think about it being like an herbicide or an insecticide and I wonder if you run into, it, it's kind of a skewed opinion. So like with these older populations, whenever you give a, a talk to someone who has, you know, been around, maybe they lived through like this era that we talked about 
uh, when, you know, DDT was widely used, if not then their parents, and maybe they've heard these horror stories about pesticides, um, and that's their example, but maybe they're unaware of how far the industry has come, taking into consideration, like, what was learned, how do we make it better, um, you know, how do we take this integrated approach to control our, our pest populations to where we're only using the amount that we need when we need it. Yeah, we've definitely become much more sophisticated in, in, in pest control in in all arenas, whatever, you know, place that you're applying those to, which is good. I mean, we, you're right. We've lived and we've learned and that. And Rachel Carlson's um, Carson's book is what really has taught us that. Alrighty, so that wraps up our episode on the history, brief, brief history of pesticides, uh, you know, what we've learned and how we apply, how, how things have changed as far as application and concentrations go. Um, if you want to learn a little more about modes of action, types of pesticides, different classes, um, we will most likely do an episode on that in the future. So stay tuned and we hope to catch you next time. Howdy to our listeners and fellow bug nerds. We want to take the time to tell you to check out our show notes on each episode and for more information and supplemental materials on the topics covered. Additionally, if you have any questions or recommendations for what you may want to learn more about, you can send us an email to www.bugsbytheyard at gmail.com. If you enjoy this content and would like to learn more about structural pests that may invade your home, check out our other podcast, Unwanted Guests. Brought to you by Texas A&M University AgriLife Extension and the Department of Entomology. As always, please subscribe or follow the podcast feed to make sure you never miss an episode.